Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, as well as the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. This episode features one of the three guests who were part of my weekly hour-long NPR show, broadcast over the air every Sunday on WLIW-FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island, where it is broadcast continuously for 15 years. This show is about dogs, cats, and other creatures who share the planet with us. Please check out my other Pet Talk podcasts at tracyhotchnerpets.com. I'm also the founder and director of the annual New York Dog Film Festival, which travels the country supporting local animal welfare groups after a New York City premiere every October, alongside my annual New York Cat Film Festival, brought to you by Dr. Elsie's. This show would not be possible without the longtime support of Waruva, the pet food company founded and privately run by David Foreman, who named it after his rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa. Waruva is a quirky name for a company with whimsical names for the dozens of different cans and pouches of cat food they make. But what sets them apart is how serious David is about high-quality nutrition. They were the first pet food company to use human edible ingredients and process them in the same facilities that make human food, remaining privately owned and run, accountable only to their own high standards. This show was also made possible with the generous support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Bruce Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. He personally created many styles of litter to make sure that even the fussiest cats would not have out-of-litter box problems, the number one reason people abandon their cats. Dr. Elsie also created his own brand of cat food called Clean Protein, the first dry cat food I can recommend because it's based on the protein found in a cat's natural prey. I'm also grateful to Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, where they create holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. Earth Animal makes a dazzling array of healing products for dogs and cats, as well as the innovative dog chew, no hide, and the hybrid dry food wisdom, which is sometimes all that my picky Weimaran or Maisie will eat. Yes, folks, I have uncovered yet another Canine Cognition Center. And before I talk to a wonderful man who spent five years at Yale at the Yale Center for Canine Cognition, Dr. Zachary Silver, who got his doctorate there and is now a professor at Occidental College where he started a dog lab, I just want to say to you, if you're thinking, oh, no, not another dog cognition lab, Tracy, it's interesting, people. Why is this at the higher levels of, of, you know, the ivory tower institutions of learning. Why is this a proliferating idea? Dr. Silver, welcome to the show. Congratulations on achieving your doctorate at Yale and for being a professor at Occidental College. It's a, a big leap for you after five years in the trenches staring at people and their dogs, isn't it? Oh, of course. And uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here today. I'm thrilled to talk to you, and I don't want you to feel that I'm putting you on the spot. But what I want to talk about is why you spent five years of your life when you could have become, I don't know, a medical doctor. Did your mother and father say, what? You're getting a doctorate to become a dog watcher as opposed to, I don't know, cure cancer? Obviously, it takes more than five years to get through medical, human medical school. But I'm wondering why 
as the days and months and years went on, you were continuously intrigued in this endeavor to get this doctorate and then go off and become a professor and start your own lab, basically. What what sustained you for five years? Well, I think that that question is, is sort of complex in terms of, of the way that we think about animal psychology and canine cognition in particular. There's really a variety of motivations that we have as researchers uh, that we kind of meet in the middle at this idea of we are studying dogs to better understand the evolution of critical social behaviors that are important to social organisms like dogs, but also like humans. So one of the, the key facets that we've identified as the, a mechanism for understanding the evolution of these behaviors through the comparative model is comparing two species that are either genetically very similar. So you might imagine a, a primate lab working with non-human primates uh, to understand what our close genetic relatives differ from us in key cognitive ways. Uh, but this model of studying dogs is a little bit different. Uh, we're looking at a species that is genetically very dissimilar from us, but has lived alongside us for right. such a long time. During their domestication history, which we estimate to be around 40,000 years at this point, dogs have been alongside humans, we've been alongside dogs. So this element of co-evolution, of us evolving alongside them, them evolving alongside us, makes them a really interesting and very unique species to ask these questions of a social cognitive nature in particular, because our social cognition has involved dogs for a long time, and canine social cognition has always involved humans. Well, that's very so interesting. Looking... Stop for a minute and explain that, because I know exactly what you mean, but break it down a little bit, because it's re that's a really interesting point. So if we go back to the early stages of canine domestication, the, the way that wolves started to become dogs was that dogs and these, we'll call them evolving dogs. I'll use the term okay. dogs to refer to these dogs in their early stages here. Um, the dogs who were able to coexist with humans most effectively were likely the dogs who survived and, and then were able to reproduce and pass down their genetic information, which likely contained something about the way they think as well. So the, the process likely looked something along the lines of there was an initial selection pressure for just the dogs who were tolerant of humans and were relatively social with us. So the, the dogs who were willing to, to come into the human social camps and be friendly, not be a threat to us, but also not be scared of us. Right. And I think that takes a lot from an evolutionary perspective to recognize that this much larger species uh, isn't going to harm you and that also you shouldn't try to harm them. And there was something to be gained just from that initial first selection pressure of dogs and humans just coexisting. But we then took a second and perhaps more important step in the evolutionary journey alongside dogs, uh, where our relationship became one that was mutually beneficial to both species. And this happened through when we started working collaboratively with dogs. Uh, this took on the form initially of hunting alongside dogs. So our hunting success as a species was dramatically increased when we started hunting with our canine companions in that situation. They were able to see things and right. smell things and, re and retrieve things that we right. just couldn't do by ourselves. So because of that, we're doing much better as a species, collecting more food. We're able to evolve at a faster rate because of that. And dogs benefit dramatically as well. They're able to get increased access to all the resources and environmental protections that humans nice. can provide. Nice, nice. I like I like the idea that you know 
our cave was their environmental resource. I love the fancy, like, you know, technical terms for, yeah, right, the cave. That was good and better scraps because we had better food thanks to them. So it was a full exactly. circle. It was it, There was a symbiosis. But when you and, said and, that our cognition of them what it took longer because we didn't i mean they were useful but we didn't stop to think how do they feel how do they think how do i get more out of them whereas they as you said were had to be hyper alert from day 1 40 million years when you were more wolf like than dog like you know to make this work right i mean they had to pay so right. close attention to everything we were doing and our responses and reactions and we could kind of i'm making this up kick them out of the way you know, throw a stick at them if they were in some area we didn't want them to be in. Right. So be- because of what you're describing just right there, uh, the evolutionary pressure for dogs could be defined as the closer attention you were able to pay to humans and the better you're able to understand yes. humans, the more likely you were to survive. Because if, if dogs could understand us very well, then they were fulfilling that role that we wanted for them, you yeah. know, hunting with us effectively, um, communicating things to us that we needed to know, being where we wanted to be at the right time. So the better dogs understood us, the more in, uh, reproductive success they were likely to have. And it was exactly that selection pressure during their early evolutionary history that primed this very interesting situation we have in the modern day now, where dogs understand a lot about humans, perhaps more than any other animal. So what we do in, in our modern research facilities is we understand exactly how much dogs do understand about humans. Um, and I find it tremendously interesting. I don't think we're going to run out of questions to ask about really? how dogs understand humans anytime soon. That is so cool because, yeah, I thought five years, wow, researcher and, you know, one project after another, one maybe even grant after another, and so many canine cognition centers that have existed, some of them under the radar. Now, Yale's a rather well-known name. One could say that safely. And yet, I didn't even know that there was a Center for Canine Cognition at Yale until somebody from there was quoted in an article about something about humans and dogs. And those articles pop up from time to time, right? Same with the one at Hunter College, which is City University of New York, which is probably the diametric opposite of the higher education scale in terms of fancy, expensive, prestigious, if you will, right? Now, their canine cognition department is now closing, which kind of baffles me, but that's probably some you know inner politics that I don't understand. Whereas yours is spawning men and women like you with doctorates who are going off and making your own canine cognition centers. And if you say we aren't going to run out of questions, then as people who cohabit with dogs, should we be a little more waked up? I don't mean woke. I mean waked up to pay more attention to what the dogs are understanding about us, how they're getting communication from us that we're too busy or blind or or dull-witted to see that they're picking up on. I mean, should if you're going to make more cognition centers and you're going to study more and you're going to learn things that you find fascinating for a lifetime, how do we get average dog owners to be above average in their relationship with their dogs? I think we'd all like to be but how do you guide us to do that? I know that's not your job at all, but it seems to me that if high education can trickle down into society, how do we get more trickle down? 
Well, I actually think that this particular area of research is one where that trickle-down happens very organically, and it's part of the reason I love this type of research so much. My, my research program involves working directly with dog owners and helping them understand more about their dogs. Nice. So when people bring their dog into, into my lab, we do our, our experiments. We understand this on a scientific level. We're learning things about evolution, about social cognition, all of these you know, ivory tower type questions right. that we might have. But when that's over, I summarize the, the information that I've learned about their dog. And I share that with the dog's owners and with the people that, that come into the lab each day. And my hope is that is that through both that process of you know communicating about the science with with dog owners and by making the research that we do accessible to to the general public, we're able to inform people about how they can become better dog owners and how they can understand their dogs more effectively. So while it is you're correct to say a, a secondary purpose of the research, um, I think it's a very important one. It's one that I'm very passionate about. Good. I'm glad you feel that way. And I and I did ask the question kind of a bit knowing the answer, because I knew that the, the Yale Center, and I think the one at Duke that, that David Harris had for years involves people, it's citizen science on a, in a sense, but guided by real scientists, which is you, coming in and performing tasks and blindfolding the dog or the person or putting a cup over something or closing doors or, you know, removing the dog and the person from each other. So, I understand that there has been an interrelationship. It's just that when I, when I look at pe- your your unwashed masses, myself being one of them, out in public, with their dogs, there seems to still be this dull-witted caveman attitude by people, and I am saying that quite sincerely, where people think that jerking on the neck and having these prong collars, and not having the dog even look at you or, or you understanding that the dog should look at you, could look at you before having a communication that has a command involved. It feels to me like we are, many of us, still stuck in the caveman thing. Oh, this dog is just stubborn. This dog is bullheaded. I go in the vet and there's a guy with a young, cheerful, you know, I don't know, golden retriever-ish dog. And he's yanking on its neck and yelling at it to sit. And the dog's back is to the man. And he's interested in other dogs in the waiting room. And I don't know, the man has a nice dog and he cares about him enough to take him to the vet. Dog looks well fed. Man has no idea how to communicate with his dog. So are you, do you think that there are books are hard, right? Because people have to buy them and open them and read them. That's a big strain on people. Are you thinking at Occidental College, where you started this lab, of using more social media-ish videos to help people out in the world? Or is that inappropriate in an academic setting? Well, I don't think it's inappropriate. Um, I, I think at this point, because I'm in such an early stage in development of this lab, I, I sort of feel like uh, the opportunities are really limitless with how Good. we go about this scientific communication. And I have, as I mentioned earlier, it is really important to me. I, I think that something that scientists have an obligation to do is to communicate their findings to the general public in a way that is easily understandable and easily accessible. So it's something that I make a priority in my research of doing this outreach type of, of work. Um, you know, it's part of the reason I'm so excited to be on your show today is that we're able to have these conversations and make information about canine cognition accessible to anybody who's interested in it. And I think that that serves to benefit every dog and every person that owns a dog and that we can improve that relationship. 
Good. I think I think that's a, a really great goal and explains why that's why you put in all those those years to get the doctorate and then to have this now prestigious position to start your own lab. I think it seems to me I have no idea what millennial actually means. So forget millennial. Just even take baby boomers like me. That people learn in different ways as we know, right? Some people by you telling them something, by them reading something, by seeing it demonstrated, or that would be through a video of some kind. Call it YouTube because that's just kind of a, a, a catchphrase. But I think there are things that it would be great, especially because your students are probably pretty conversant in using filmed information, right? Whether it's the dinner they ate or something more meaningful like their wedding. But the idea that you could get video out to the world in little sound bites or little little eye bites that would help people understand better what their how smart their dog is and how much their dog wants to please them but you have to work in a partnership and i feel like you're at the the brink of the next evolution of how smart scientists the thinkers help the rest of us be better guardians of dogs and have a better time have better outcomes in those relationships and have another generation of humans who are better at this. We've been pretty clumsy, right? Choke collars and prong collars and yelling at dogs and yanking their neck and and not understanding that dog, you never had to do any of that if you had developed a communication relationship with them. So I really hope you'll do that. And I hope you'll come back on this show, Zachary, and bring to the show exactly what you're doing and how it works and how do your students feel about it? I mean, that's really interesting. You were one of those students. How are you going to inspire that next generation of students to do even better, more valuable work that doesn't just benefit the textbooks in a sense, but people living with dogs? There's too many of us living an unfulfilled life with our dogs. That's what I think. So I wish you such good luck and good work at Occidental. I think you're going to do really cool things. Uh, you obviously already have. You don't get a doctorate by just, you know, phoning it in. So congratulations on your achievements so far and on what I hope you clearly want to achieve going forward. Well, thank you very much. And um, yeah, everything that you, you just said about some of those goals of education of this research uh, really does resonate with me. And I I do hope I'm able to come back soon and share some updates on everything I'm working on at Occidental. That would be great. And now people that might not know where they want to go to school or what they want to do in school, you could apply to Occidental College. I have no idea. Maybe it's brutally difficult to get in. But you could, if they, they could apply, and they, could they apply to get a degree in, I couldn't be in canine cognition, but animal behavior? So I'm in the Department of Psychology at Occidental. Oh, nice. So, um, yeah. So for a student majoring in psychology, they'd have the opportunity to work in my lab and work in this type of research. Um, and there's also going to be classes at Occidental that are focused on canine cognition. Uh, this spring, for instance, I'm teaching a seminar that will be um, largely about canine cognition as well. Uh, so there's cool. plenty of opportunities for students to learn about, about animal cognition and canine cognition in particular at Occidental College. That is wonderful. I'm so glad you're the flag bearer for that, and I hope lots of people take advantage and get inspired to carry on your work. Dr. Zachary Silver, Occidental College Canine Cognition Lab, and he'll be back. Thanks again, Zach. Thank you very much for having me.
I hope you enjoyed the show. There's a few more special companies that make the show possible, and I hope you'll try their products because they support my mission to entertain you with valuable information and advice. I want to thank Wonderside, founded by a woman entrepreneur who discovered an effective natural way of using plant-powered products to repel fleas, ticks, and other parasites on our pets instead of putting toxic chemicals in or on them. Wonderside makes it possible to protect your pets, children, and property without the chemicals that could be harmful to all of us. The show is also underwritten by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two dedicated women who take human edible, ethically sourced ingredients, and gently cook dog food that is then frozen in pouches and shipped right to your door. They founded and run their own company and answer only to their own high standards. Finally, we're supported by Magic Fabric Pet Throws, developed by a husband-wife team whose expertise in the textile industry solved the problem of their big hairy dog, Molly, who got on the couch in bed with them, despite her wet fur, muddy paws, and shedding. Sound familiar? They created machine-washable Magic Fabric Pet Throws to trap pet hair, dirt, and moisture, letting you enjoy dog and cat cuddle time without sacrificing your clothes, furniture, or decor. You can buy direct from the creators at magicfabric.com.